G'day, everyone. Welcome back to Talking Leadership. This is Eric Perez. Thank you for joining me again. And as always, thank you for supporting the podcast. By way of introduction, my guest today is the lead in science communication as a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne. Can I welcome to the podcast, Jen Martin. How are you, Jen? I'm very well. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. But I'm feeling a bit of pressure now because it sounds like your career as a podcaster is going to end unless I can say something insightful. So I better uh, I better think you're, you're, clearly. You're right. No pressure. No pressure there. <laughs> Uh, okay. I'll do my best. So let, let's, uh, for, for the sake of introductions and some backgrounding here, can you give the listeners a bit of a sense of what, in 200 words or less, if you can, what a, a science, uh, a lecturer in science communication, what's the ultimate aim of trying to get, get better science communication out there? So I believe that we will be a far uh, more successful and happier and more equitable and more sustainable society if as many people as possible are science literate and are engaged with science and see science as relevant to them. And we want people making evidence-based decisions about how they travel, what they eat, how they live, all of those things. People who have that knowledge are the scientists, yet uh, traditionally scientists were never taught how to share that knowledge with people who didn't have scientific training. And so there's a pretty major gap there. So my my job is to train as many science students as I possibly can at Melbourne Uni how to be more engaging and, in fact, and effective communicators, how to explain what they do, why they do it, what they're trying to find out and what that's going to mean for people. Sure. We, and we could do a whole podcast around why a position like yours needs to exist. So let, let me ask a couple of questions just to unpack what you've said there, if, if I may, uh, if you can indulge me on this. Has the traditional training of not just scientists, but people in technical roles, so engineers, engineers, I'd go as far as to say maybe even teachers, that communicating has been assumed because of the profession and not specifically targeted in the way you teach people at, in the university context. So I'll, I'll give an example here. I, I recall a few friends of mine when I was uh, during my uh, university days, many, many decades ago, uh, they were studying law and they had to do some communication subjects as part of that degree. So even back then, there was some understanding that if you're going to be a lawyer, you need to be able to communicate with your clients or there's there's going to be a disconnect there and that's not going to be good for professional practice. So I guess my question is, has it just been assumed in at least at the university level that communication is something that is it going to come as a function of just the learning process? Yeah, I think you've absolutely nailed it there, Eric. So, so I guess by way of background, I'm a scientist by training. I'm a field ecologist. My PhD was spent uh, chasing around a particular species of possum, trying to understand uh, how they used their habitat, how they interacted with each other. So I'm technically a behavioural ecologist by training. But during the course of my PhD, I started to have real misgivings about the value of what I was doing because I just couldn't see how, even though I was really invested in, in, in conservation and in understanding species so that we could look after them better. You know, that's why I went into, into the field I went into because I grew up loving nature. I grew up believing we needed to protect nature and I grew up thinking that the way to protect it is to understand it better. But then here's me coming to the end of my PhD thinking, but hang on, all this information I've collected about this, this uh, possum and the habitat it lives in, how's that actually going to conserve it? How am I going to communicate something useful to land manners or managers or to politicians or to anyone who has the power to make decisions. I don't actually know how to do that. And I kind of had this pretty major revelation along the lines of, well, how am I going to actually make a difference to the world? How am I going to 
you know, enact any change in the world and how humans impact on the world if I don't know how to communicate what I know to the people who need to know it. And so that really started me on this adventure, I guess you'd say, of exploring the idea of science communication, because as a science student myself, I was never given any explicit training in communication. Yes, I wrote assignments. Yes, I gave talks, but no one ever actually taught me how to do those things well. I'd never thought about who's my audience and how can I pitch my information effectively to that audience? How can I tell a story? So it's interesting, you know, all that stuff. I'd never heard any of that. And so when I started to sort of ask around, when I first started lecturing at uni, I sort of started asking around, hang on, if if the way our students are going to get jobs and if the way our students are going to make a difference in the world is to be effective communicators, can you just show me where we teach that? And the answer I got back, which fits exactly with what you said is, the answer I got back was, oh no, they pick it up by osmosis. They just kind of become good communicators along the way. They just pick it up. And and I sort of went back thinking, you know, I was very junior at this stage. I didn't feel like I had any possibility of kind of making a difference. I sort of went back and thought, but hang on, you don't become a concert violinist by watching another concert violinist. You become a concert violinist or any form of violinist by having lessons, by practicing, by getting feedback, by being told how you could get better, by practicing again. So why should communication be any different? Why do we assume that people are just going to be good communicators or equally why do we assume some people are just born communicators and relegate other people to saying well you'll just never be any good at it so don't do it and I wonder with science if it's just because of this stereotype that the you know the archetypal scientist slaves away on their own for decades and and then eventually they come up with a discovery and and you know the whole system of science is set up around writing writing manuscripts publishing in academic journals going to academic conferences you know the whole system that we operate in and that we're rewarded for at least until very recently was all around just communicating your findings to other scientists. But if those scientists aren't the ones who are making decisions around how the world works, you know, there's there's just this major gap. So for me, really, the whole reason I transitioned from teaching biology and zoology and wildlife ecology to students to now teaching science communication was just this deep sense of you don't learn this stuff by osmosis. You have to be explicitly taught it. And science students need the opportunity to develop these skills. And then they're not getting it. I mean, I I didn't create science communication by any means. There are science communication courses all over the world. But at my university, before I started doing this, we weren't explicitly teaching communication skills to science students, which I saw as a major major gap i think the the analogy or at least where i can make it real for some of the listeners and especially in my own a world of advocacy that in the seafood industry like i think most ag sectors we have uh, what they call uh, research development corporations and a lot of times often you'll get very good detailed proposals from researchers who have varying specialities and as part of the process um, they do the science they get the data they craft it in a report, uh, typically a technical report, and then that somehow needs to go to decision makers or at least those that are using these uh, these data sets to make decisions, whether it's fisheries management or, 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 or land management, whatever the case may be, that what I was finding, and this isn't anything new, but I think it's being taken more seriously over the last, say, half a decade is the end bit of the research process, the adoption and extension. Um, I think in the extension component of a research process, you've got to communicate what you found and what does it mean for the for the audience for the audience in which you did the research. And 
I think, and this, this isn't to denigrate researchers, but I think it's just the nature of the training that's received that I think in at least the seafood industry context, from what I've seen of research projects, the, the ones that are significantly long-term, that at the end of it, it doesn't seem to be the job of the researcher to do the extension element which will help the adoption element of the research process. Mm. Again, I'm not trying to be critical. It's just what is. And the research development corporation system wouldn't be spending the dollars or investing the time that they do trying to get better extension and communication because that's, I think that's where the main game is. It's, it's If you look at it structurally, the process, I think ideally should be people like yourself and people with uh, a lot uh, bigger grey matter than myself are doing good research. They put their findings together, they then have to communicate to multiple audiences. So the technical paper that's written is for a technical audience, but remembering that you're delivering a paper to research development corporation corporation that may be linked to the ag sector or the fishery sector, your audience are a lay audience and not a technical audience. And unless specifically defined, those extra comms extension bits of work aren't done. And I think into the future, if it's not already happening now, and I can't be 100% sure if I haven't engaged with the that research process for a little while, is it's going to become mandatory in the delivery of research that if you can't do the extension component and communicate your findings to multiple uh, audiences with different backgrounds, then you may not get the project that you're applying for and or uh, having to provide evidence of you having done extension work and communication work. So I think uh, the work that you're doing is eminently critical and it's and to bring it back and link it to the leadership discussion, I think leaders in the science field and leaders in the policy area that need your information to make hopefully science-based decision-making, then the need, that bridge of communication needs to be better than what it is. I think at the moment we've got a very rickety bridge that needs to be repaired and I think people are doing, doing what they can to do that, but I don't think it's in the culture to the degree that it needs to be in. And that, that again, it's not a critique, it's just a, 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 a view from the outside looking in that universities weren't built to think in that way. And if what you're saying before, I think you used the word osmosis, if it's assumed, that, <laughs> if, if it's assumed that studying an, an academic uh, in an academic field that you will be a naturally good communicator, I think that's a massive. It's a massive mistake if you're thinking that way. It, it's 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 fraught with danger. I mean, uh, uh, again, outside of looking in, I think the only degrees where you could say that with some confidence would be something like teaching, because you've got mm. men and women being put into classrooms and, in effect, being asked to learn. Uh, and look at how you deliver messages to a group of other human beings. So you're being taught communication 101. But beyond that, I don't think it's done as as part and parcel of, of degree programs. Does that ring true for you, Jen? Yeah, look, I mean, I think if you if you undertake a science degree or an engineering degree or whatever it is that you're doing, you'll certainly become a very skilled communicator to some certain audiences. You know, you think even at, at high school, students who are studying biology or chemistry or physics, you know, they're writing prac reports, they're, um, you know, whatever it is they're doing, they're certainly learning to communicate to some audiences. So I'm not suggesting that the learning's not there. But what you said earlier is the key. They're not learning to communicate to different and diverse audiences. So students who go through a science program 
or at least a traditional science program at a university will be learning how to write a thesis and how to write papers. And that's terrific, but those are generally communicating just to other scientists and often only other scientists in their discipline. So they're encouraged to use really technical language and to assume that their audience knows a whole lot of background information, which is important and great. And I'm not saying that scientists don't need to do that. It's it's very important. But the problem is that that's not the only thing that's important. We also need scientists who can go into schools and chat to, to school kids and inspire the next generation of scientists. We need uh, scientists who can talk to the media and explain really clearly and succinctly what this research is about and what it means for people because, you know, there are very few journalists out there who've had science training and it's not the responsibility of the journalist to be an expert is in the science. That's the scientist's job. But there has to be a, a meeting point halfway where the, the journalist can ask intelligent, thoughtful questions and, and communicate what they've learned accurately. But I think the scientist has to meet that journalist partway and explain it. And, you know, there are there are many, many scientists that you and I can think of who do this brilliantly. I, I really reject that idea that all scientists are bad communicators. I find that really offensive because it's simply not true. There are so many great scientists. You think of some of the things that have been happening in Australia in the last 12 months, whether it be COVID, whether it be bushfires, whether it be any other number of things. We have scientists who are brilliant communicators out there, but you know, they ha- they're not all. And, and the way I look at it, the more the merrier. The more scientists we have who are great communicators and who can turn to any audience and think, okay, who are these people? What are they going to be most interested in? What's relevant for them? What are they invested in understanding here? What might they misunderstand? What misconceptions might they have? How am I going to hook their attention? How am I going to keep them engaged? What sort of narrative will keep these people listening to me, given we all live in a world with so many distractions? You know, the more scientists who can do that, I just think the better off we're going to be. And, you know, there are many basic arguments I can make to scientists, one of them being that the vast majority of research in Australia is publicly funded. It's funded by taxpayers. Therefore, I would argue that we are ethically obliged to make sure that those funders, as in taxpayers, can understand what their money's got them. So what did you find out? What does it mean? What decision, decisions should we make differently on the basis of what you found out? And, and most scientists agree with that. And the other way I think that we can convince a lot of scientists who, who tend to be nervous about trying to do more public communication or, or just feel like they don't have time is if you want to get grant money, you generally those grant applications are going to be reviewed by people outside of your immediate discipline and you need to convince them that this work is worth doing. And that all comes down to communication. It's how you tell your story. It's how you make your argument. So there are so many reasons why I think teaching communication skills explicitly to science, uh, science students and of course to scientists is, is incredibly important. Yeah, I, I couldn't could not agree more. I think I think where leadership is lacking here, and this is outside of academia now. So I would have been now ten years ago this year. Yeah, this year ten years ago, I was dealing with a large research body. I won't go beyond that because if I give more detail, you <laughs> work out who that who that body is. But this this, this large research body uh, published some information in an area of of interest to me in my advocacy role in in the fishery space again you won't be able to work out who who these people were but they allowed a journalist to publish something that was taken out of context and what was taken out of context was I, i think that's the right terminology that they didn't read to the end of the discussion in the paper that said Mm -hmm. this is a preliminary analysis and there's a lot more that needs to be done you have to take what we've got here with a grain of salt because there's more to come and this is one element of a broader 
research process that was missed out in the um, journalist publication and when that came out it potentially put some of my industry one of my industry sectors in in um in the proverbial hot seat because it mm-hmm. was misconstrued and so um, after much wailing and gnashing of teeth I was um, instructed to speak to the research institute that allowed this to happen and my question was to the head of this organization you can't use the shield that academics can just public what publish what they want without con- consequence in the real world it doesn't work that way particularly if you're talking about an industry sector irrespective of that sector and more to the point my my uh, critique to this person was did you bother to talk to us or could we have seen this to look at what was being proposed as an industry body before it went out so we could have spotted the error and asked the question hey can you catch this with this extra bit of information to give people context and Mm -hmm. this is where i think science communication falls over with the media is that they want quick short sharp analysis and they don't provide context a lot of times or at least the level of context that would give you some pause to think, okay, maybe there's, there's something more rich, there's more richness here to the information that's being conveyed. And um, after a bit of an argument with this, this, this person, I said, look, no one is saying to you, the scientific community is allowed to publish their research. We're not blocking that. And it's contrary, contrary to the process of getting better information out in the public sphere. It's if you're, got, if you're going to talk to media make sure you understand what you're saying so that it doesn't put my industry into jeopardy. And, mm. um, yeah, it took a while for that person to understand that. And they were belligerently still saying at the end, well, it's up to us what we publish. <laughs> we had to then write to them and to their board to say, no, this isn't good enough. You need to do what you need to do, but you need to think about the industry context. And so what I learned from that interaction and it's still fresh in my mind because it, it, I think this could cover in any industry sector that if a researcher is using industries funds and public funds to do work, it's incumbent or there's some ethical responsibilities around how the data is reported in the context in which it lives. So uh, you may, you know, you may find something, uh, a shocking new finding, but it might be only generalizable to one little element of an entire industry. And if you don't say that when you publish it, people might go, wow, it's the end of the world for this species. It's the end of the world for this environment. It's we're done. It's not a good use of communication. I think where this treads into the leadership space is those that are leading industry research bodies or those that are in a position to look at this stuff before it hits the world, whether it's leaders in the newspaper game or in in my game and advocacy, we need to understand what that process is. And I think there's a lot more to be done in that space. So even those of us that work in the communication space all the time, Mm. there's always this need to go back to first principles because I know the context of what I'm talking about. The researchers I deal with know the context of what we're talking about, but the public doesn't because they don't know what they don't know. And uh, the the potential misuse of information is a massive problem. And I, I still think it, it's an ongoing one. Do you, is that is that fair call or not? Oh, look, absolutely. And I think that's one of the real challenges inherent in science communication, because on the one hand, we know very clearly that effective communication is something that uh, captures somebody int- somebody's interest 
and is a relatively simple, straightforward narrative that people will remember. You know, we know that's what good communication is. But of course, very little science falls into, you know, falls into that category of being a very simple, straightforward narrative. So you're caught in this position between, I know that as as a scientist communicating science, I have to be accurate. I know that's important. But equally, I have to make sure my audience is going to understand and ideally remember what I've told them. So where is that fine line between saying a very simple, clear message that everyone will remember, but how much accuracy do you lose along the way? Because anyone who's ever had anything to do with science knows that it's not, it's very rarely straightforward. There are lots of nuances. There are lots of complexities. There are lots of caveats. And, you know, as as an educator, I'm saying to my students, the general public, and of course, you know, that's a silly term in and of itself. There is no general public. The research has been done. The general public is massively diverse. There are all sorts of, you know, when it comes down to how how interested people are in science, how engaged they are in science. We can categorise the general public in inverted commas into lots of different groups. But if we just think about, you know, the people out there who who might be listening to the news story or reading the article or whatever it is, you know, my message to my students is just just try and get past all the caveats and make a clear statement about what this means. But on the same, by the you know, the very same token, I'm also saying, yeah, but you've got to prioritise accuracy. So that balance of narrative versus all of the different details, all of the prior assumptions, all all of the nitty gritty that means this might not be always true in all cases, you know, it's complicated. And people love to have headlines like science says X, but science doesn't actually say anything. Science has collected evidence that suggests X. And here are the statistics that that tell us how likely we think X to be true. But, you know, you can't have a headline like that. So on the one hand, I think the science communication is effectively just the same as any good communication. It's accurate, it's clear, it considers its audience, it's narrative-based, all of those things. But I do think the complexity of science and the fact that, you know, we can never really be completely certain of things to the 100%, it's all likelihoods, it's, you know, it, it's difficult. And I think really good science communicators, uh, and I, I don't necessarily count myself among them at all, I think I'm good at teaching science communication, whether I'm also a good science communicator myself or not is another question. Uh, you, uh, I think I think doing, it's you're difficult. Doing well, mate. You're doing well. Um, <laughs> and I, I, get, I get where you're coming from. I, I think it, 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 uh, it's, it's important for the, those that are not, yeah, for those that are not part of the science community to understand that there are limitations to what can be done. No science, no science is so comprehensive that there is a final uh, answer. A causes B. It, it's never quite that nuanced or that that black and white. Sorry, I think. Um, science- yeah, we're we're always just getting closer and closer to a more accurate answer. The more data we collect, the closer we're getting to in inverted commas the truth. But but I think the issue is that there are many many people in the world who've never had what I would consider to be you know, the privilege of studying how the scientific method works. And it's only once you understand the process of here's a hypothesis, how am I going to test that hypothesis? What data do I collect? How am I going to set up my experiment? How can I be sure that my results aren't confounded? What are all the factors I need to consider here? You know, good scientists who are really good at experimental design, there's so much that goes into doing that properly. And, you know, that that's why the replication crisis, as it's called, that we're currently in is so fascinating because people are going back and repeating a whole lot of studies that have been done in the in the past and finding that they actually can't replicate the results. So particularly, you've probably heard there's lots of psychology studies, you know, that come out with this really interesting finding about human nature, you know, oh, it's apparent that humans do this. But when someone has gone back to actually replicate that study, and you know, it turns out the original sample size was, it was only white male university students in California, you know, and they did the experiments, you know, 
after a meal and there was only 30 of them or whatever it was, yet that finding got shared widely and people think that that is now a, a true reflection of human nature. Now when people go back and replicate that experiment, it turns out that you don't get the same results. So science is an ever-evolving process and it can be difficult to characterise our findings in very simple messages as people are accustomed to on, on the news, on social media. It's, it's a constant balancing act, which is I find fascinating. Yeah, and it's the, the problem I think you have and we have as industry advocates trying to get a message out there. So this is where I can, I can see some common ground with uh, those in, in the science community trying to get a message out that in, in the advocacy space, we're faced with the same dilemma that we've got complex issues. Like, for example, yeah. fisheries management in the state of Queensland is as complicated a beast as fisheries management anywhere in the world and trying yeah. to... Um, Simplify. I'm not. Uh, I think the, the the wrong term is dumbing down because that's not what I mean. I think it's agreed. I simpl- hate that term. Yeah, I, I hate it too. The simplification of something complex loses the nuance of the complexity of that phenomenon, whatever it is. And if my studies have taught me anything, is that sometimes things are complicated because of the nature of what you're looking at. There are so many different variables that might act on the, the the phenomenon you're trying to look at that in the long term you may never get the definitive answer as to what is what is or why is this uh, process the way that it is or why is, uh, for example, uh, what is leadership? Now, mm. um, I've asked that through my studies. I've read about it. I've asked people about it. No one person has the exact view of what leaders are, what leadership is. We have a group understanding of what leadership is, and I think we often peg it to a position description. So if you're a CEO, you're a leader. If you're a manager, you're a leader. If you're Elon Musk, you're an entrepreneur, you're a leader. Um, you're, it's either your name or a position or whatever. If you get into the nitty-gritty and I ask 10 people define leadership, I think I would get 10 different answers with probably a common theme across the answers, but not the exact answer every time. Mm, I agree. I, I think you could ask a hundred people and you get a hundred different answers. Sure. And, and where other things are more simple in terms of, let's say, mathematics, if I said to you, well, one and one is two, if I asked a million people one and one, I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna instinctively know that if I don't get two every time as an answer, something's not, <laughs> something's not quite right. It's, it's very definitive. One and one is two. In, in the field of, of leadership or in many other fields, one and one sometimes doesn't equal two mm-hmm. or it equals something that, that you didn't expect. And that's where uh, I think the, the love of research or those that want to be in that research space comes in. And, and where this gets interesting for me as so, someone who's trying to understand leaders and individuals in that leadership space, and this is where I can draw it back to your experience, if, if you'll allow me, Jen, is you've probably dealt with a lot of people in leadership roles in different parts of the university system, probably out in industry land. Do you get some sense, if I had to ask you, and don't identify anyone, please, but uh, <laughs> uh, for, for the sake of a general answer, of all of those leaders that you've met, what kind of grading would you give them out of 10 for their science communication if you really had to knuckle down and, and be fair income about how good are these leaders in getting out information when it, when it comes to 
communicating science. Well, I guess I should preface it by saying that a lot of the leaders that I interact with in my job, they're not scientists and they're not trying to communicate science. So to get that, to establish that first, but I I think that's precisely why I do what I do, because what I've seen is just the full gamut. You know, I've, I've worked with people who are really excellent communicators. They're very clearly tuned into who their audience is, how they're going to uh, speak directly to that audience. They know how to use time well. They know how to use language well. You know, there's all the things that you and I could talk forever about what really good communication is. But then equally, I've just seen some absolutely abysmal communication. And I, I don't like this idea that you can only be a good communicator if you were born that way. You know, think back when you're at school, there were kids who loved getting up in front of the class and talking and there were kids who found that incredibly um, anxiety provoking and probably avoided at all costs. I I believe that part of the second group, (laughs) Jeff. I would rather, uh, I think it was Seinfeld that said um, most people, if given the choice of of reading the eulogy or being in the casket, would prefer to be in the casket than giving the eulogy. I I think, I think communication, uh, so that I don't forget this, uh, I'd love to get your take on this. I think there's still an inherent human fear in speaking, getting up in front of a crowd and and talking about anything really, but let alone something as technical as science is that I think what, what you may not be aware of, and I'm doing this as an outsider looking in that I think most people find communication difficult to start with getting up in front of a group is difficult anyway. And I think those in the science communication field have got those two layers. Plus you've got to get a message that you can convert into a uh, language and a, and a context that, that is relevant to, to the audience. So there's a triple whammy there for those in that, in that science communication space. So I think it, it, it's necessarily more difficult to do. And I think it, it explains to some degree why you, you, you made the statement that there's that whole pathway that from point A to point B that you've got everywhere from the ultimately good communicators that you think, wow, where did this how did they mm. get that good to um, this this person should never be allowed out of the lab, <laughs> they should never communicate anything, and then everything in between. And um, I, I, I would also add to this, and maybe um, this is something that's not discussed a lot, and I would love your view on this, is I think the audience has something to play there as well because I, I think the expectation of the lay community about your ability to communicate something very complex should be an easy thing to do. Well, you're the scientist, so you should know how to make, make this in a language that I can understand. Maybe for some topic areas, it's just not that easy to do, nor would it be fair to the people that are researching it to uh, simplify it to the point where you lose the nuance of something complicated. And some mm-hmm. things are complicated because they just, and what comes to mind is things like researching cancer, for example, or things that take multiple decades and people are, are you have generations of scientists trying to find ways to maybe not find a cure is not the right word, but to lessen the impact of certain cancers that this is a generational thing. These people have been working on these problems for generations and to say, well, I want someone to come in that's working on Alzheimer's to give me the 10 minute uh, simplified version of what you've been doing in your research. And what does it mean for me? I mean, I, I think it's sometimes the audience expects too much. Um, Well, I think, I mean, I just think it all comes down to your goal. I mean, that person who's coming in to talk about their Alzheimer's research, 
what's the goal? You know, how can they how can they best use their 10 minutes? But I think what you said a little bit earlier about, you know, let's imagine that person, they've got 10 minutes to share their life's work. Of course, public speaking is incredibly stressful because you make yourself absolutely vulnerable and open to, to direct criticism. You know, I guess if you write something and someone reads it, you're not there and you're not able to hear what's going through their head if they're if they're in a monologue is God, this person's an idiot. They've got no idea what they're talking about. You know, or gee, they're a terrible writer. But if you're up there speaking, you're you're really putting yourself out there in a very stressful way. So, you know, that kid who loved getting up in primary school and speaking in front of the class and still finds it easy, terrific. But I guess one of the driving factors for me is that and again, this is a massive stereotype. And of course I'm I'm I don't uh, think this is always true, but there are certainly people out there who weren't that kid at school who have always found putting themselves forward and speaking up and being visible very stressful. And and sometimes those people make very good scientists. Not always. I don't want to pretend that that's always the case, but sometimes those people make very, very good scientists, very creative thinking, great problem solvers, very analytical, very diligent, all of those things. Do we not want to hear their voices just because they're not natural public speakers? Of course we want to hear their voices. We want to hear all voices of people who are contributing new knowledge to the world. So so that's why my job is to help everybody wherever they are in that continuum of abysmal to to really very proficient public speaker. And of course, I teach more than public speaking, but speaking is a good example. How to become confident, how to become more effective at public speaking, how to not dread public speaking, how to deal with the nerves of public speaking, because I want to support diverse voices. So I want to hear from everybody out there who has interesting knowledge to share, regardless of whether they're a natural good speaker or not. And equally, regardless of whether English is their first language, I have the privilege of teaching lots of international students. And that's really hard. Can you imagine doing a university degree in another language and being marked against people who are who are native English speakers? Full kudos to all of the international students, particularly those right now who are studying from home. They're getting up at three o'clock in the morning so they can make their online lecture. You know, they are doing it really tough, but I want to hear what they know. You know, that I don't want their voices to be excluded from the conversation just because English isn't their first language. So if I can support those voices to have a place in the general kind of consciousness consciousness of our understanding about solar energy or about treating diabetes or about treating prenatally born babies or whatever it is, then we need to make sure those people get the training to be able to contribute to the conversation. I think it's, you know, it's absolutely fundamental. It's, it's brilliant to hear and it, it helps in terms of the topic around leadership in my mind that communication is important full stop. I think it's one of those things that at least in, in the discussions that I've been having, Jen, that it comes up time and again that how we communicate, how we structure a narrative, how we interact with those around us um, requires either verbal or nonverbal communication. And you've, you've got to be cognizant of that to get action from people. Not, not only do you have to have other certain leadership skills and traits or whatever the mix is for, for you personally, I think communication is a critical one. And mm. the fact that you're at a research institute, uh, you're at, sorry, a university um, as an institution and you found that this was lacking, I guess that um, it, 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 in some ways it, it, it's a... Uh, maybe comfort's not the right word but maybe comfort (laughs) is the right word that this is an ongoing challenge for everybody that communication is difficult it's a nuanced thing I've had a couple of people on the podcast and they've been very good good at opening my eyes to this and I didn't realize it that the the ability to tell a story the narrative um, being able to get somebody in with a story that is a coherent 
uh, deliverable message is difficult to do and people aren't very good at it. And I think mm. it needs to get better, whatever the field. So whether it's science or whether it's advocacy, uh, advocacy sorry, fisheries management, land management, politicians. Um, I, I put politicians in a very different category. I think their form of communication is is a political form of communication. It's not one that yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm personally very interested in, but they have to be communicators as well. And uh, I'll end my contribution here by saying that I've done now two different media courses through my life as an advocate to understand the media process. And now having had this discussion with you, I think I'm being able to join the dots a little bit better around what communication actually means in a, in a at a macro level that, if you're not consciously thinking about it, you will revert to type. And for someone like me, who's not an academic or at least uh, a junior researcher in training, that I think the I've, I've got to click that bit in my brain where when I'm talking to people, whether it's on this podcast or talking to guests, that um, assuming knowledge is a dangerous thing and being able to unpack some of what's being discussed is is eminently uh, important. So um, this this conversation. Yeah, and, I, and so I was going to say, I think it's really easy for us to assume that our audience is just like us, and to assume that that if we talk in the way that that you know that allows us to say what we want to say, that we've achieved our goal. But I think the whole key to good communication is not saying what you want to say; it's saying what your audience actually needs to hear. And I think that's one of the challenges for scientists is that you know not many people go into science because they think they're going to be rich. Not many scientists go into science because they think they're going to be famous. They go into science because they're deeply passionate about answering questions, and so. That passion is incredibly wonderful because it means scientists absolutely work their guts out to find answers to important questions. But if that scientist has never thought about effective communication and has never considered that their audience might not be as deeply emotionally invested in what they're doing, you know, in the research as the researcher is themselves, they start speaking in a way that is just not going to connect with their audience because they think their audience cares about all the nitty gritty details. And so part of my job really is just to get scientists to step back and say, hang on, just because I love this and because I want to spend so many of my waking hours thinking about this question doesn't mean that that's where my audience comes from. So let's think about how we can get the my audience to really be excited about this and, and to to ask interesting questions. And it's, it's just like you said, it's just a bit of a, a switch from flipping thinking my audience is just like me to going, actually, how cool is it that my audience is really different to me? Yeah. So how can I become a better communicator by thinking about how I can, how I can honour that audience's time by giving them something that's going to mean, you know, be meaningful to them? Effective communication is really rewarding and exciting, but you have to have the chance to to explicitly learn it and practice it, I think. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. Look, thank you for your time, Jen. For, for those listening and following the podcast, thank you again. I've been speaking with Jen Martin, the leader, senior lecturer in science communication at the University of Melbourne. Thank you, Jen. Thanks so much for inviting me. Lovely to chat. No worries. And for those listening, this has been Talking Leadership. I'll catch you all on the next podcast.